Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Pursuit from Bourbon to Brand, however you found us. We're glad you're here as we get a behind-the-scenes look with the Pursuit Spirits brand. My name is Brian. I am your host. And joining me tonight, like last time when we had Ryan isolated, we have the one and only Kenny Coleman joining us. Kenny, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Brian. I, I guess pressure is on for me. I mean, I think Ryan said the same exact thing last time. We, always, we usually lean on each other a lot for... The answer is we have a very good dynamic of going back and forth because we we kind of know I wouldn't say we don't know how to we don't know how to finish each other's sentences, but we know when somebody's finishing their sentence. And so they know when to go and pick up and, and kind of go on and, and start talking after that. So it'll be uh see what kind of dynamic me and you have. I hope you guys don't miss each other too bad. You know, it's it's nice to get a little break. Absence makes the heart grow fonder at the same time. <laughs> I mean, we text each other thirty times a day uh, easily. Right easily. Well, speaking of something that's going to be happening together, I know that we already released this information. So at the time of this recording, uh, it's it's old news, but we have the Pursuit brand hitting the road to promote Pursuit United Bourbon and Rye. You want to talk about that a little bit for anyone who didn't catch the announcement already? Yeah, this was, honestly, this all kind of came about, it was never a big intention to go and say, we need to go on a 13 cities tour against five states and all these markets in three months because we felt like doing it. It was honestly, it just kind of happened because we were asked, actually, we we're, we we're, you know, we were bottled United. We got it out the door and we knew that we had to go and just do some market visits every once in a while and go and check up on things and kind of see how things are going and do some store visits, do some education for distributors and stuff like that. And then we sent everything to Ohio and then the state of Ohio comes back and they go, hey, uh, and it was trying to mention there was somebody that is a fan of the podcast and they've been listening to it forever. And when they found out that we were dropping United in Ohio, they said, I would really encourage you to do like a five city tour in Ohio and we'll promote it. We'll do all this sort of stuff behind it. And I was like, I don't really know. I was like, can we just put it on the shelves and like just let people go buy it? And they said, well, what time do you think that you could make it? And I looked at my calendar. I said, I think maybe the week of September 19th, I can get up there. She said, oh my God, that's perfect. There's no other bourbon releases that entire week. And I was like, okay, I guess that's uh, that's the, the impetus that we need to kind of make this happen. So as soon as that happened, I started getting on the horn to all of our distributors, some of our stores that we know with relationships around Kentucky and a few different places. And I just started figuring out, okay, well, how can I set up all these things that, you know, all these places I want to go and see, uh, stores we want to go visit. It all kind of worked out pretty well because my actual day job has me going to Chicago and Dallas in October, November. And I looked at that and I said, perfect. We're already distributed in Chicago and Dallas. I'll just make a trip out of it and go and do some market visits up there while we're doing that too. So it it all just kind of fell together pretty quickly. And now that I'm looking at the calendar of events, it's almost a little daunting because this week when you know you're hearing this episode, we're getting ready to go to Kentucky Bourbon Festival, which is happening uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Mostly just Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but. You know, this is going to be the first time that we're going to be owning and staffing a booth for an entire weekend. It was something that I know when we saw Kentucky Bourbon Festival kind of pop up, I said, I think 
we should be a part of this. And that's because the people at KBF, they originally sent a message to me at Bourbon Pursuit saying, oh, we'd love for you to just come and cover it, maybe do a podcast on it. We can have a table where you can set up equipment. And I said, I, I don't, I don't want to do that because Kentucky Bourbon Festival, even though if I brought my equipment, it's not going to create a great recording environment. It's not going to be a good product in the day for the listeners. So instead, what I want to do is I want to be there and I want to promote the hell out of the podcast and I want to promote the hell out of our whiskey. And so that's why we said, let's go ahead. We'll step it up and let's get a booth. Let's pay the entrance fee. We're going to bring in a bunch of cases of whiskey for people to try. And that's just one of those things that as we start going down this path, we're starting to realize that meet, more people just need to try the whiskey. It's the same reason why samples at Costco work so well is because you're walking up down the aisle, you see it right there in the corner, you're like, well, okay, I'll get that. And you're like, oh, Detroit Company Pizza is actually pretty damn delicious. Let me go ahead and get a box of that. I mean, I'm a sucker for it. I fall for all the time. And this is the same thing that we have to do inside of the whiskey world is that you've got to get people to try the product to be able to to kind of make that leap and, and purchase it. So so now we're this is kind of the the thing is that we're we're trying to go and shake hands and kiss babies and get people to try the whiskey so they can become stewards of the brand and they can know more about it. And I think it's it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be strenuous to say the least to be able to kind of put all those miles on the car and make all that happen. But I think it'll it'll be it'll it'll pay dividends in the end. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Not just for not just for the whiskey and the brand, but also just to meet people. I think that's one of those things that I'm very excited to be able to do as well is that knowing we have such a, a hardcore audience of bourbon enthusiasts, not just in the Patreon community, but beyond that, uh, of course, the Patreon people are going to, they're going to show up. And, and I really appreciate everybody that, that is able to do that and really kind of be the crowd gatherers and the crowd starters. But beyond that, it's just an opportunity to meet a lot of people that are listeners of the show out there. I mean, gosh, we do 40 to 50,000 unique people that listen every single month. I'd love for every single one of them to come out, but I know that's a, that's a big ask, but I'm just saying, I, I'm really looking forward to having everybody kind of come out, meet people. I'm not going to be remembering his name because I'm not good at remembering names, but you know, just the fact that we can we can shake hands with the people that listen to us and we can kind of understand exactly sort of where they are in their bourbon journey and how they found us and and you know how they how they enjoy the show and everything like that. I think it it means a lot to be able to to do something like this too. And aside from being able to try the whiskey, which is obviously key point there, you're going to have some other items there. I think you were talking about some glassware and whatnot, which which we've gone back and forth as something that people haven't necessarily been able to access before, right? But some of those things might be there. Yeah, I, I kind of went through, I didn't order a bunch of new stuff. I kind of went through our existing inventory that we had. I mean, it, I've got all kinds of stuff in my basement because it's just, there's nowhere else to put it. And I'm not going to open up a a retail store online and be in the the business of shipping glass because that's just nothing that that's nothing I want to do. However, we're going to have, I think, I don't know, somewhere around north of like 60 different Glencairns, a few different coupe glasses. There's going to be some t-shirts and stuff like that, that you can order online when you're there. You can also order the bottles via seal box after you get try it when you're there. And one of the coolest things that I, I'm really excited for that we kind of sprung to make it happen. I know that when I go to any kind of any conference or anything like that, there's got to be something that draws you into the booth. People are usually doing like giveaways or something like that. But we were out at a at a friend's house and they had this big giant Connect Four board. And I was like, that's it. 
a giant Connect Four board. Like that's going to get people in. So ended up finding this person on Etsy who makes custom ones. And now we've got this thing. It's like almost three and a half feet wide. It's five feet tall. And then all the discs either have Bourbon Pursuit or the Pursuit Spirits logo on them. And so you can kind of play Connect Four. So it's an easy way to kind of get people engaged, having fun, uh, playing a game when you're going to be outdoors. So it'll be it'll be an interesting little thing to have there. You mentioned that you're going to be in Chicago, that you're going to be in Dallas uh, for your current job. And and I want to start off this episode, and I've got I got a direction I want to take it. But I want to start this episode the same way that I did with the episode that we just did with Ryan. And I'm kind of curious. I want to start by talking about what a week in the life of Kenny looks like from from your regular day-to-day that you do to what you're doing when it comes to pursuit. What's what's a week look like for you? Yeah, well, I can tell you Ryan's definitely, we, we're a lot different in regards of, of how we operate. Ryan, as you had probably listened to last time, you know, talked about being a very spiritual person, talked about his meditation, this kind of time to center and relax. For me, I am very much the opposite. I I feel that idols, idle hands are the devil's playground. So I'm constantly having to do something. So he talked about getting up and praying and meditating and stuff like that. Uh, the first, and you, gotta, you understand that he wakes up at like 4 or 5 a.m. I only wake up at 4 or 5 a.m. because I'm old and I have to go to the bathroom. It's not because I, I want to get up and start my day. I, I want to sleep in as much as possible. And Typically, it's around 8 a.m. is usually when I'm getting up every day. If it's the weekends, we're laying in bed because we're lazy till 9, 9.30, sometimes 10, and then we'll get out. I mean, we're up at 8, 8.30, but we don't really get out of bed because we're sitting there just looking at our phones. But but I mean, that's I'm kind of like a lot of people out there. I wake up, and the first thing I do is I open up my email, and I see what do I need to tackle, what do I need to delete, and that kind of starts my my precedence for the day. How deep is my email inbox? And, and this is kind of a bad thing about me too, is I have this addiction to inbox zero. So I'm constantly looking at it. I'm constantly either answering things, trying to tackle things. And I guess that kind of just goes back into my like sort of task oriented style that I am. So the first thing I'm doing when I'm getting up, besides just kind of getting myself ready of just brushing my teeth, putting my clothes on, then I got to get my daughter ready because I'm on daddy duty in the morning is that I've got to get her up. I got to get her moving and I got to get the pancake made. Every, it's like clockwork. It's every single morning I have to make a chocolate chip pancake for my daughter. It, we utilize the Kodiak protein pancakes with the Costco cho- chocolate chips in there. I mean, it's I've probably made 4,000 of my life now. So I've got the the timing down to a science on how to make the perfect pancake. So after the pancakes made after that point, then it's just corralling her, getting her off to school. And then after she's in school, I'm at my desk around nine to nine fifteen. And that's again when I just start tackling things of of looking at emails that were, you know, I left unread or I put a star next to that I know I need to go and tackle. And then I'll go and look at my not when I say emails, that's also my personal, that's burn pursuit, that's pursuit spirits, as well as work. And so I'm trying to balance all that at the same exact time. And then from there during the day, it is a, it's a balancing act. I'm sitting there working on things for my day job, whether it's projects, dealing with team meetings. Uh, I mean, 
it's the tech side and tech world. Everybody kind of knows you, there's at least three to four hours of meetings every single day that you have to go in. And it's always one of those hard things because it's hard to get really concentrated on something when you have to continually bounce in and out of meetings. You just lose that that train of focus because it takes about, I think, 30 or 45 minutes to actually get into a groove of doing something. But once you have to leave and go to a meeting, you, you kind of lose that aspect of it. It's it's a constant balance of, of doing that every single day of, of just going back and forth between all three jobs and figuring out what do you need to tackle, what needs to get done. But that day doesn't end at five. A day doesn't end at six. That day usually ends at 10 or 11 at night. And so that's kind of really what my my Monday through, I should say Sunday through Friday really comprises of, I, I kind of really shut down around Friday at five and then Friday and then Saturday, I kind of take those days either for me or I'll do some other catch up stuff. I mean, it sounds bad, but I'm still playing catch up. I'm still doing bourbon stuff on Friday nights and Saturday nights. If I've got nothing else going on, sometimes joining in the virtual happy hour that we have for our discord crew on the, on the bourbon pursuit side, then you know, sometimes in the weeknights, it's a little bit of family time. I do my best to try to shut my phone off and be present there with my wife during dinner. But I've also, I never, I was never in the military, but the way I eat, you might think I was because I finished my food in like less than three minutes. Like it's quick. I, I don't take a second to breathe, to talk, to take a drink or anything like that. It's just constantly scarfing food down. And then she gets mad at me when I start, when I finish my food and she's just kind of getting started. I'm done. And so I start clearing my plate and start cleaning stuff up around the kitchen. And so my wife's mad at me because I'm not spending any time with her. But I that goes back to me just like constantly having to do something instead of just being in the a moment talking about something. But that's something I had to get better at. Yeah, for the most part, that's that's a that's a very hectic week for me. People probably know that I don't know how to turn it off. I'm constantly busy, constantly thinking about things. I mean, just to give you an idea, earlier tonight we got done. Should I say, my daughter was supposed to go to softball practice. It got canceled, so me and her ate early because we we thought we we're gonna have to go, but the rain killed it. So my wife comes down and she's eating her dinner, and I sit there and I I hover over the other chair on the opposite side of the table, just looking at her because I'm just trying to be there with her. And she was like, can you please sit down? I was like, I feel like I've been sitting down all day. I feel like I need to stand. Uh, and then after that was over, she was like, okay, I'm going to go upstairs and watch TV because that's how she shuts off. She shuts off and watches her TV shows. And I go, okay, well, I'm going to go and look and build automations for non-resident sellers reports that I have to do every single month for Pursuit Spirits for uh, the states that we're in, because it's something that's been on a task list forever. And it takes a little bit of coding to figure out exactly when a QuickBooks invoice gets submitted. And I got to go and figure out the state where it went. And then I got to look at the amount of quantities and turn it into proof gallons and send myself an email. So I know exactly when to go ahead and submit that at the end of every single month. Uh, I've been doing it manually for a long time. So it's just one of those things that I'm constantly looking for efficiencies and ideas. And so I'll, I'll, I have my Evernote with like 30 or 40 different things of wish lists. And that was one of them. I started tackling tonight. And even before we started tonight, I realized like, oh crap, I broke one of the auto, like basically something that could easily break if I don't fix it. So I'm just like going back. It's because I'm not a really good coder. It's a, I'm a fragile coder. So I'm, I'm trying my best to go through and fix things where they, they might misstep in there too. But 
again, it's just one of those things about me. I just, I just can't turn it off. And I'm just constantly thinking when I'm going to bed, as well as I wake up, all three jobs, family, all that sort of stuff. So balance, balance, balance. And I'm not the best at it, but I'm working my butt to try and make it happen. Well, let's take a step back then. I'm curious, this data-driven nature and technology, how and when did it become such an important part to how you operate? I mean, technology in itself came a part of me as when I was a really young age, my dad got his first uh, 386 is kind of when I got into computers. It was when he got his first work computer. He worked for Thermo Fisher or Fisher Scientific back in the day. And he got his first work computer. Remember, it it was an i386 and there was like this golf game on it. I don't remember what it was, but it was some golf game. It had that and like a word processor. That's that's all it had. Not even Windows. And that's kind of like my first introduction into using computers. And so I was really fascinated with it, really fascinated with video games growing up. And, you know, you can kind of continue this cycle. You start getting, you know, your actual first computer. Getting into high school, I started building computers. I went to Trinity High School here in Louisville. And back at the time, I don't know if they have any more. Back then, it was one of the first high schools in the nation that offered Cisco networking certifications as a as a curriculum. Usually those are things that are left for people in the trade and in the profession. And I said, all right, I'll give it a go. I'll try it. Again, just kind of like, I just love technology, loved everything about it. Me and my friends would do all these, looking back, they were not the most uh, glorified moments, but just doing a bunch of stupid stuff on AOL back in the day, you know, stealing passwords and uh, everything like that, that we could kind of figure out how to do script kitty stuff <laughs> way back then. And, not proud of it, but you know it's one of those things that you learn. Uh, you learn how to mess with the technology. You learn how to do good things, and I mean, for people that are network security, like you got to learn how to do bad things, be able to protect yourself against those things too. We're able to kind of manipulate our way into a lot of mischief as kids. You know, going through there, going into college, I knew I wanted to stay in tech. Uh, never really stirred, stirred far away from it. Didn't go into computer science because computer science requires engineering degree, which requires a lot of math classes and as anybody that's close to me will tell you, is that I am not good at math whatsoever. I'm one of those people that said, I will have a calculator with me at all times and it's going to be in my pocket, which ends up being my cell phone. So that's that's kind of where I, I drew the line that I had to move out of the actual CS program and get into what was called like management information systems. Long story short, it's just a bunch of coding inside of Excel. I only did that for about a year out of college and I said, I'm not doing this ever again. So I uh, ended up finding a few different paths choosing a few different technologies that led me down uh, some really, should I say, really good technologies that led me down a very successful career inside of technology. I've been fortunate to work for a lot of great companies over the past few years. And it's just one of those things that I don't think I would have had that chance if I didn't find technology at a young age, or if I wouldn't have found it appealing. I really had a, a big fascination with technology for a very, very long time. It was kind of like our first love. My One of my first jobs out of college, I was working for a law firm in downtown Louisville. This is also when I was dating my wife and now wife Lauren at the time. What I would do is I would actually go into work on a Friday and Saturday nights because the server room, I was the network guy. The server room was a freaking mess. There were wires just going everywhere. And so I would spend my Friday nights re- rerunning cables because I wanted the server room to look pretty. And that's kind of what I did when I didn't have a chance to go out partying or something like that. I'd go ahead and do that because I knew nobody was going to be in the office. Nobody would care. And as long as I had a maintenance window, then it was fine. But 
you know, it's one of those things that I, I had a lot of good fun with technology for a very, very long time in my career. And now I'm getting to the point where it's, I still enjoy it. But now that I'm like really passionate about bourbon, I'm noticing how fast, and I noticed this before, and it's just noticing a lot more now is how fast technology changes and how hard it is to keep up with everything. Um, the the types of programming languages change every four to five years of what things have to be built in. The the types of technologies that you're running your applications in, they change every five to 10 years. And you just constantly have to stay up with it. It's not like accounting. Well, I, sh- I should say, I'm not trying to do a dig on accounting, but I feel like accounting kind of stays pretty constant for the most part, except some tax laws change every once in a while. But as a part of all that, to kind of go back to what you're saying, is like, how did you become so data focused? There was a few positions that I had in my career where data played a big critical role into how you had to think, but mostly in how you measured yourself. That is because in the the positions that I had, you had to show your value. And the only way you could show your value is by having the data that proved it said, okay, you made this many impact on this many people. You had this many views. You got this many hits. You got whatever it is. And that translates into, okay, are you meeting the expectations that have been set in front of you? Part of that is you have to be able to set those goals and kind of know exactly what you're working towards as well. You have the data, you have to figure out how to track it. And once you have the data, then you can measure it. Just to give you an idea, I've been using data for a long time just on the podcast side because you're able to look at the growth of listeners over time. You're able to look at your social metrics. You're able to look at uh, Patreon metrics. You can look at exactly at what point did we have a, a huge spike and you can try to attribute that to certain things that you've done, whether it's advertising or whether it's any kind of campaigns, anything like that. And so data plays a big role in, in almost everything. And one of the things that I'll always say is if somebody tries to push something in front of me and if the data says something else, you know, I'll be like, the data doesn't lie. At the end of the day, it doesn't because you kind of have to go in with it as a sort of analytical mindset rather than kind of leading with your heart. But I know it's a kind of a long-winded way to put it, but that's sort of how I've become, you know, really fascinated with the technology side of things, but really letting data lead some of the decisions that I do make. So this is another thing that I, that I was thinking about because I know how data-driven you have things when it comes to the barrel picks, the things for bourbon pursuit, and, and what you mentioned with the roadmap and whatnot with pursuit spirits. Do you ever think that the, the data logging that you do takes away from the in-person experience that that also exists or coincides with a lot of things we do, whether it's pick experiences, whether it's, you know, rolling out of a product or say coming up on this, the tour that's going on. Do you think that, you know, being able to gather information to put in the data or to follow the roadmap that might be laid out through Excel spreadsheets or not, do you think it takes away? No, I think it, it it's a necessary part of it. Uh, just to take the tour as as, a, as an example, well, well, we'll have to see how many bottle sales come out of it. Does it offset the cost that it takes for hotel rooms and plane rides and gas and everything like that? And and my time that is, is involved with doing it too. You know, if, if it offsets it, okay, cool. Then I guess we see that you know, we'll, we'll see what depletion rates are were like. We'll see what sales look like. And therefore, we can attribute to the actual time that's invested into it. That's that's the way I work, Brian, is that 
anything is going to have data at the end of it. And the good thing is everything that we do is is all digitized nowadays. And we can take that and we can attribute different things to uh, end results as well as what is that, that moment that is going to make a difference in the process as well. You know, the tour is one thing. Uh, the barrel picks and the Patreon experience, yes, you're always going to have to be there in person and be a part of it. But there's also numbers behind it as well is that we have to look at a lot of different things because people are wanting to sign up and they want to be on the barrel picks. And I have to go, well, you have about, um, you know, X percent of chance of actually getting on a barrel pick this year because you're in this particular tier and you only have this many chances to get on because we're going to do maybe... 30 in-person picks or something like that. We're going to we're going to choose like over 50 barrels, but maybe only 30 person picks. And so your your odds of getting in are going to be x amount. But that's that's just one of those things that yeah, maybe that takes away from the experience a little bit, but it's also good to know as as a as a baseline of people that are wanting to explore the option and figure out exactly is this right for me? Well, I can give you some data just to say, here you go, this is what it looks like. And I also think that helps in the back end too is that even in the, just in the barrel pick side is that you can go and you can see all the barrel picks that we've ever done ever as a part of bourbon pursuit. And you can see exactly when we did it, the, the day we did it, what was the sticker theme? How many bottles came out of it? What was the price that it sold for? Who was the retailer? And by being able to keep a log of that, I, I could tell you how many times we've had to go back and revisit and look at that spreadsheet for various things to say, okay, well, we can see that we paid X for a bottle back in 2019. It's gone up another 20% now and so on and so forth. But those are just the things that is, if you have the data, you have it handy, it's easily referenceable. And it's something that you can look at and just uh, use as a, as a gate, as a gauge for future decision-making purposes as well. And, and you had mentioned a little bit ago too, when you were just talking about keeping up with the different types of technology that are going on and that, you know, that there's that they're starting to move faster than you're able to have the time to keep up with them. Do you think that there are certain things, trends that you're seeing in the industry? Maybe things that you're having to deal with Pursuit Spirits. Maybe that you're seeing other brands uh, that are really working with where things are, either on the technology side, either on maybe just mediums of which we're currently presented with. And this could, I mean, this is all over the place. You know, n- maybe not just technology for technology's sake when it comes to equipment or any of that stuff. But, you know, when we have a rise in in people talking about NFTs, you've got cryptocurrency, you have all this <laughs> random stuff, all this new happening so quickly. Um, how do you see that presently, like, converging with the, the traditions that we've had as it pertains to uh, spirits at, at the, the whiskey industry or where you guys find yourself today and or, you know, potentially other non-distilling producers, distilling producers uh, that you deal with. So there's a common quote that's in my industry and you say it mostly for a lot of companies. And that's because you've seen, by the way of Kodak, you've seen a lot of different companies go this way is that either adapt or die and technology will disrupt absolutely every single industry. Whiskey's going to be no different. Now, are you going to use technology to make the whiskey, the whiskey itself different? Yeah, I mean, you've got some people that are trying it already today and you've got your, you know, your different spirits companies and your sonic waves or whatever, but that's that's not necessarily what I'm what I'm talking about. What I'm really looking at is is the operational efficiencies. You already look at pretty much every single distillery that's out there today. How many people are out there actually turning knobs? I don't know, 
5%? Is it just all the craft distilleries? Maybe it's just the craft ones because they're using maybe a small pot still. They're, they don't have the, the bank role to be able to sit there and afford a, a, a big custom, you know, computer controlled, still operational thing. Like you go and look at any modern facility, it's all computer operated. And for the most part, I, I think that's probably because, yeah, it's going to be operationally more efficient. You're going to have a better product at the end of the day. If it, if they weren't doing that, then they wouldn't be doing it. And it's going to save not only just in, you know, the manpower that goes into it, but there's a lot of things that technology can catch that the human eye can't. And I mean, gosh, that's kind of why I'm really excited for autonomous vehicles and stuff like that too. I, I just, well, that can be a whole other episode of just like why I want autonomous vehicles to be everywhere and no, no longer, I don't want to have to touch the steering wheel, but I, I see that the way that technology moves in a, in a way that from an operational perspective of a distillery, yeah, you have to learn to adopt it. I don't know much about on the back end of what it's like to say like, oh, how do you do barrel inventory and how do you sit there and measure, you know, what's happening inside the warehouses? I know there's a few different companies that are out there and you can Google them. They're working with folks at like Barstown Bourbon Company and they're doing like the internet of things on every single barrel where you can measure the humidity changes inside of the barrel through different seasons. You can look at evaporation rates. You can look at alcohol vapor. I mean, you can look at all this data that they're pulling off this little sensor that they've got inside the barrel and that's going to give them some information they can pull off. And that's probably all somehow network meshed into something that all feeds into a backend database and they can use some level of analytics to decide exactly, okay, this is what's happening over in this side of the warehouse and so on and so forth. Um, Andrew Weinberg over at Independent Stave, he's got a lot of great information of essentially how barrels have changed over time in a regular rickhouse versus a palletized warehouse and how they're pulling out different types of chemicals. So Independent Stave has a lot of good things going on when it comes to their, you know, but the, the NFT thing, ah, yeah, you're right. Maybe that is moving too fast. I, I saw that as, I mean, don't be wrong. I, I got a little chub when people started talking about NFTs and I started looking into it and I was like, okay, I, I kind of get this. I kind of get it. I'm still young enough that I can get it, but old enough, I'm sort of like, I don't really, I don't get this. <laughs> so it, it took me a little bit to understand exactly the values that NFTs were going to bring just in general. And, and I jumped on one and I know a few other people jumped on the, the party horses bandwagon because, well, A, you got a free bottle of Maker's Mark as a part of being able to do this. But for me personally, I also had connections with the person that was actually running the NFT as well as the artist. The artist was somebody that I worked with at my first job, actually out of college. And so that's why I, I had this sort of personal connection that I wanted to be a part of it. Plus you got a free bottle of bourbon out of it. I said, what the hell? I'll go ahead and spend a couple hundred dollars if I know we've all spent money in dumber ways, so we'll just figure out if this will if this will work or not. But as we've all kind of seen, the whole crypto thing was up and down really quickly. And it's starting to make a comeback, but it's still gonna be years away from what it was not too not too long ago. But I don't know. The the NFT thing's a little little kind of pie in the sky. I don't anticipate doing any NFTs anytime soon. We're just going to try to focus on selling bottles the old fashioned way and with a, with a credit card, not even Venmo. Yeah. This whole web three thing is 
even where I, I sit, I'm still a little, I feel it's far-fetched. Everybody says it's coming and I don't disagree for the most part, but I would feel that it won't be coming for another like 10, 15, 20 years until we see that happen. I've got a VR system set up here behind me, but it's about five or six years old. And hell, I don't want to leave leave that thing in my head for more than 20 minutes. It starts hurting after a while. <laughs> so you've got to figure out a way to just make the gear comfortable to be able to sit there in general. There's also, this would, it would make sense in a world of COVID or it makes sense in a world where you don't want to be in a, a social type of atmosphere that you, maybe, maybe it's like the, the answer for all introverts, right, is, is going to be meta because you can go ahead and be like, oh, let's go ahead. You know, introverts unite alone, but let's go ahead and do it. <laughs> um, so that would be like one of those things where I could see where, you know, people are going to gather. And I understand people are doing it already. You have your your bourbon societies, you're gathering via, via Zoom, doing virtual happy hour or something like that. There's no difference. Uh, there's no difference in, in doing that via in meta versus doing it over zoom except you're just going to have a different type of visual experience as you're doing it as well and i guess it depends on if your glass is going to hit your vr goggles or not as you're pulling it up <laughs> that's right <laughs> the uh you know the, the second part of it is that you know buffalo trace has already actually done a full vr experience of their entire distillery you can go ahead and you can go to their website and i don't, I don't remember where it was but reported on it, i think two years ago and you can go ahead and you can kind of have this sort of you know, 3D experience inside of their distillery. Pretty novel idea, but you didn't see them make any more noise out of out of it after that was done. It's been two years since then. I don't think anybody's probably heard anything from it. Angel Zenvy did something in Meta and bought some land there or something like that. I mean, again, it's one of those things that, yeah, you make some noise now because it's the cool thing to do. I don't understand, and I'm sure a lot of people here is like, I don't understand why you would buy property in Meta when it's essentially endless, and you know, just you can make more no matter no matter where you go. So that's it's one of those things that I I still am very very hesitant to say about the future of what it's going to be. I think there's going to be a place for it, and it's going to be for what I said earlier is that you know you have just another meeting room. You're going to have something else where you can congregate remotely, but it's not going to replace that in-person experience that you're going to get. And I, by nature, I mean humans are needing in some sort of personal touch. You have to have that sort of in-person experience to really know somebody and to really kind of get all that you can out of it. You had mentioned that the data you are able to come up with, the data that you're able to show for your work, it assigns value to you. What other things in your life do you find valuable? Oh, that was deep. What other things do I find valuable? You know, besides the actual, of course, there's there's value and tangible goods and stuff like that, but really you got to find the value in the, the intangible assets. And I know for me, I, I find value in the types of experiences that I'm able to get with my family. I know as I kind of said earlier is that I need to make more time for it and stuff like that. And we do, we make, we make time for it. Uh, we do a lot of stuff on weekends. We're terrible planners at, at vacation, which I think is, it's big. That's a big opposite compared to Ryan because anybody that doesn't know is that Ryan's wife, she, she does hair. And so she has her calendar booked out for like seven months in advance. And so they plan everything about a year and a half in advance for where they're going to go. 
me and my wife, we plan about three weeks in advance for any place that we're going to go. And I think that's, we find value in being able to do that only because we're not tied into some sort of thing that, you know, we planned a year and a half ago. What, what do we do if something's changed? You know, we can kind of, you know, we can kind of move on a, on a whim if we need, you know, I, I find value in that, but that also kind of goes into value of what I have in, you know, in my, my work-life balance, my, my work is, uh, is in a good spot. And I should say my, my day job is that, you know, I'm not, I, I value that work-life balance because I'm not always cranking out 60, 70, 80 hours a week in my day job. Instead, I, I have the time that I can invest into spending the other time to make it a full 60, 78 hours a week doing bourbon stuff as well. And, you know, I, I find that truly valuable because that is what's going to give uh, a way to, I don't want to say set up, you know, a, a, a lasting future, but to be honest, like that's, that's what I want to do. I mean, I, I look at that as a way that, oh my gosh, like I see what, what Ryan's able to do is been able to grow and build his own business. And this is the first time that I've been able to do that. And I think it's a, it's a very valuable life lesson of, of what it takes to be able to do something like that. Ryan's been somebody that's taught me a lot when it comes to, you know, teaching entrepreneurial habits to his kids and teaching entrepreneurial habits to me as well is, is like, how do you get yourself to not be just another cog in the system? How do you own your own destiny and how do you build something that, um, you know, kind of lives on and kind of operates without you as well? And so that's really what I'm excited to do. I, I think that's going to be a, a really cool thing uh, to build. And, you know, if, if, if we had any say in it, Ryan and I have already kind of talked about, we're like, you know, this would be really cool for our daughters to take over one day. And if we can keep that legacy alive and we can kind of make that happen and we can convince them that bourbon is a, a good avenue to spend their careers, then so be it. I don't know. We'll see what happens. So, so you mentioned early on, and I think this is even prior to how it pertained to bourbon pursuit, but even with the data that comes from Bourbon Pursued, you mentioned being able to track metrics and and you mentioned that the data never lies and ascribing value to the data that comes from that. Now that we see how popular Bourbon Pursued has grown and uh, you know, we had Pursuit Palooza, a lot of people came out and, and it's continuing to just exist as you know a, a highly desired uh, resource for people to get bourbon information. And then simultaneously, we're seeing Pursuit Spirits continue to grow. We're seeing the flagship products continue to release, growing in the amount of people, the places of which people can get them. How long do you think that those brands need to continue to grow? How big do they need to grow? How much data needs to continue to accumulate for those brands before you say that it's valuable enough. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever end. <laughs> That's it's one of those things that I am. I'm a highly competitive person, by nature as well. So just on the podcast alone, you can go to bourbonpursuit.com, and you can go and look, and there's going to be a, a link on there that says whiskey podcast rankings. And I wrote a script that runs every single day and pulls basically how. Every whiskey podcast ranks in the Apple podcast charts, and it does it uh, like every night at 11 p.m. It'll update, 
And so therefore, I know where we stand compared to everybody else. And I always look at it as kind of what I said earlier, is that if you don't adapt, you die. Somebody else is going to eat your lunch. And that is a way to me to kind of have my finger on the pulse and know exactly, are we doing something right? Are we losing ground to somebody? Is there something that we're missing? Or is it kind of like, are we on the right path? And so that's a that's a continual monitoring, uh, that's what I would say, is it's more observability than anything. Monitoring and observability to make sure that you are moving and trending in the right direction. Now, that's just the podcast side. You know, I've we've tried to already figure out, like, how do we advertise more? How do we find new listeners? How do we find fringe things? And I have a feeling that we're with other plans that we have in the future for Pursuit Spirits that by being able to potentially have a, we'll call it an HQ one day that we'll be able to exponentially grow the podcast uh, listener base as well, because that it's just going to be something that is just going to be a, a good harmonious uh, union between everything. On the brand side, when is it going to be enough? Well, you know, we have this grand idea of being close to a 50,000 case brand, and that should that goal should come to fruition by 2028 to 2030 at some point. Now, once we get to that, and this is one of those things that we've we've opened up the books to a few different people just because we wanted to know exactly are we are we thinking strategically correct are we thinking too pie in the sky is this too big is this not so on and so forth and 50 50,000 case brand you know it's 300,000 bottles that is pretty much the size of Henry McKenna okay so to just to put that in perspective so to we want to be the size of Henry McKenna just in X amount of years. That's not a big brand to say the least, right? I mean, that's just enough that we look at it and we're like, okay, like this is a, a footprint that we think we can manage. And we're able to do this with just the money that Ryan and I have been able to bootstrap and fund and find ourselves. To go beyond that takes a significant more amount of cash to be able to make that happen. And when we open up those books, somebody goes, why'd you stop at 50,000? We're like, well, cause it's our money. Like we want to get paid at some point. And, you know, we're doing it already where we keep dumping more and more. Every dime that we make, we keep dumping it back into either buying inventory or buying something and not paying ourselves. But at some day we, we actually do want to pay ourselves. And, and, you know, we don't want to be a, a, a company that's completely, should I say, always trying to crawl itself out of debt. But instead we know that the, the footprint that we'll have is going to be comfortable enough that we're not going to be, you know, sitting there basically, you know, like holding the buck when things go actually go wrong. And if this thing turns and there's a huge bourbon glut, you know, we want to make sure that we have an established brand, but we don't want to be sitting on a ton of tons of inventory that we can't move. And I feel that we're going to be in a pretty good situation with that with all the investor barrels and everything that's coming online here in the next, you know, one to three years, if I were them, I'd be kind of worried because I don't know how many people need 300,000 barrels right off the bat, <laughs> unless you're somebody like us that just needs to make some spot purchases. I mean, that's, that's a lot of whiskey that's going to come on the market. So I don't want to be the one that's sitting there trying to figure out, okay, how do we bottle this? How do we get rid of it? I don't want any more in inventory than I have to have. Um, and we're going to have some other cool things that'll be aging for a while, but I don't want to sit there and sit, you know, have a warehouse full of stuff that I don't know what to do with because nobody wants to buy it. And so we just want to make sure that we're in a comfortable position. And, you know, we looked at the data, of course, and we said, this is, I think, where we could be comfortable being in the next 10 years 
uh, of what we can sell and what we can manage with ourselves and a small team. I'll kind of close this one up with a, a similar question that I, I closed with Ryan's episode, which is, what is it uh, about about working with Ryan that is like a, a counterpoint to you that or or a check to you? Or what are the things that you appreciate about working with him that just kind of fits into a groove with your kind of data-driven uh, analytical nature? Stroke his ego here for a little bit because I know he, he stroked mine, but this is a good opportunity for him to, I'll, I'll kind of repay it back, if you will. Ryan and I, we, we, we really are a great partnership at the end of the day. I couldn't have happened, you know, just ran into somebody that we were able to kind of build something that, you know, we, we definitely counterbalance each other's strengths and weaknesses when it comes to it. And we come to an agreement on a, on a lot of different things. It's very rare that we look at something and, and disagree on it. But if we do disagree, one of us folds pretty quickly and just lets the other have the win. It's nothing that we're willing to die on a hill and say like, no, you're going to ruin this. No, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's never like that. But, you know, for Ryan, his, his background is something that has been insurmountable in the amount of advantage that we've had in building Pursuit Spirits. Because anybody that's never ran a business, I mean, you could think that you know how to run a business. Like I thought I knew how to run Bourbon Pursuit and I can run it. And that's one of the things is like, I ran Bourbon Pursuit like a business because, you know, if you want a hobby to be taken seriously, and something like Bourbon Pursuit, if you want to be taken seriously, you need to treat it like a business. And I tra I treated it like a business. I mean, we we set goals, we set, we have LLC agreements, we have all this other kind of partnership agreements, there's trademarks, there's you name it. Everything that we want to do to protect ourselves and to build the brand, we we did it the right way. Now, that's one thing of just kind of creating content and putting it out there and trying to figure out how you can get advertisers and uh, pull in money from different places. But when we started looking at actually how to run and manage a business on the Pursuit Spirit side, his background of actually having his current businesses plays a huge role. And that's because I'm sure like any other business owner that started is he made all the mistakes up front before he started with this one. And so he's learned from all those. He knows exactly what it takes to be able to run a, a, a profit and loss and a balance sheet and how to do inventory and what the, what all that means. I, mean, I, I never had to do any of that with a podcast. I mean, sure, there's QuickBooks and stuff, but for the most part, you don't have to worry about inventory. You don't have to worry about sales tax. You don't have to worry about all this other kind of stuff. And then in the future, it's going to be health insurance. And he, he's done all that. I mean, from just a, a business managerial aspect, like he brings a lot of value just in what it's like to just to get that up and running. And when it comes to, you know, the the other part of the business, of course, I know everything that's on able to, because I'm very organized. I can execute. I'm very analytical. I've got my task list. I know exactly what it needs to be done. I know who to, whose door I need to beat on, who do I need to email, who, where do I have to go fish for information. But, you know, Ryan's got a, a true gift when it comes to the blending side. I know we've talked about it before that you know, we've done plenty of like blend offs to try to figure out who could create the better one when we were first doing our initial United batch and his just smoked mine, like smoked mine every single time. And I kind of just put my hands up in the air. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'll, I'll come up with some good ideas. I'll make sure we execute. I'll be the COO when it comes to this, but he's the CEO. Like he's the good idea guy. He's the one that can 
uh, kind of like turn these sort of dreams into a reality. And I'm the one that can kind of execute on, on sort of the vision and sort of what he sees. Uh, we both have different, we should say different. We all have similar visions on sort of where we're going. We kind of share that. We kind of share the vision. We kind of share the dream of, of where we're going to go. But, you know, he's kind of the, the golden child when it comes to actually producing the product at the end of the day. And he does a phenomenal job at it. And that's something that I couldn't do on my own. I know Fred and Ryan, they all give me credit. They're like, oh, what's your palate? Like you can, yeah, I can. I think a lot of people here can taste good bourbon. I, I just feel like, you know, I've tasted enough bad bourbon that I can know when something's good. So that's that's the way that I kind of picture it. It's not because uh, nobody here is super gifted anyway. It's just, you know, it's just repetition and making sure we, we put in those reps to to have a great product in the day. And, and like I said, it's we have a great relationship when it comes to uh, our business candor demeanor. We have the same work ethic at the end of the day too. Because if it was if it was just me putting in sixty hours, seventy hours a week, then it wouldn't feel fair. But I know Ryan does just the same, and he lives, breathes, and sleeps this business as well. Because we both want to make it success. We both know what the potential is, and and sort of how we can get out of our day jobs and just focus on bourbon full time. And that's really where we want to get to. And it's going to be a few more years until that happens. But there is a there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and. If the if the data and the spreadsheets all add up the way that we think it will, then you know it's it's an exciting thing to kind of work towards. Um, and it's one of those things that once you get there, do you just go ahead and hang up your hat and be like, ah, oh, we did it. Let's go ahead and call it quits. No, that's kind of like when the work really starts because that's going to be your your sole income and your your sole way that you can provide for your family. And so you've got to make it work and you've got to put in the the extra sweat equity to make it happen. And I know that we'll be able to do that. We've got a few years of paying back investors and everything like that before we can even pay ourselves a little bit more, or should I say not even pay ourselves a little bit more, but even hire more help. And I think that's going to be one of the things that we're going to struggle with in the very beginning is how do we do a lot of this with just Ryan and I and a handful of people, but until we can actually hire even more people that can help with scale and, and a lot of things, but it's an exciting future that we have for us. Listeners, if you guys have any other questions, if you guys have other topics you want to hear us break down, podcast of Pursuit Spirits. Don't forget to go to PursuitSpirits.com slash tour to see what city we'll be in next. We've got Ohio, pretty much five cities in Ohio, Toledo, Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati. Then we're actually coming back into Louisville. We'll be in Chicago, Memphis, Nashville, Dallas. Houston, and then wrapping it up in Lexington, Kentucky. Ohio, I'm really, I'm, I'm expecting a lot from you guys, okay? This is our first pursue into the state, and, and we've heard you all say that you want us to be here, so I look forward to, to hearing all the interactions with everybody for all the Ohio dates. Thanks, as always, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Pursuit. Until next time, we'll see you all later. Later.